0: So maybe 'm a, a way of starting tonight's talk is one description I think is useful sometimes of suffering. It's sometimes described as being on a wheel. And this is the, the word in Sanskrit and similar in Pali, samsara, where we're on this wheel and we just keep on spinning in our same stuff, meaning we keep on repeating the same reactivity to getting anxious and contracted or chasing after the same things or reacting to other people with blame or defensiveness. And we just find we're on this wheel. And sometimes the wheel feels like we're just always busy or like there's always something else around the corner that we have to prepare for or be anxious about or get done. But there's this sense of it just doesn't end. We keep on being on this wheel. So I think wheel, like a merry ground, you can't get off. And So one of the deep understandings of a path of meditation is that this wheel is a trance, that we're in a trance or a story about ourselves and our world that keeps us reactive and that by paying attention, by the practices of attentiveness, relaxed attentiveness, we truly wake up from this never-ending spinning-ring activity and discover that which is holy, that space, that silence, that stillness, that aliveness. Getting off the wheel of samsara doesn't mean into some void of nothingness. It means into this empty and yet totally alive, vibrant, mysterious world. It's coming home. So we're going to talk a bit about that, how our practice allows us to enter that aliveness so there's not a sense of always being on our way somewhere, of skimming the surface, of not really loving, holding back our loving. How do we really enter? There's a, a Zen story that I heard um, There's tons of Zen stories. (laughs) But one of the ones that I really thought was a a useful one had a master and this young monk, and they're sitting by the trail, they're going up a mountain, they're sitting um, having a simple meal on the trail. And the student is asking the master the simple question of, how do I enter Zen? Which really means, how do I enter into this experiential awakeness that we're talking about? And there's a really long silence. And then finally uh, the, the master says, do you hear the sound of that mountain stream? Now the student's mind had been really busy and jumpy and so on. so at first he strained to hear the sound of the stream. But finally he just calmed down into that truly relaxed listening, alert, relaxed listening. Finally it was hardly perceptible, but he heard the murmur of a small stream in the far distance and said, yes. The master said, enter Zen from there. So the student experienced Satori. And Satori is this kind of non-conceptual understanding where everything comes totally alive, empty, alive. Enter Zen from there, that, that listening, that could hear the stream. And all of a sudden, his mind starts going, and he says, uh, "What if I hadn't heard it?" And the master nodded and said, "Enter Zen from there." <laughs> and what I love about it is, it doesn't matter the actuality of what you hear or see or feel. It doesn't matter whether you're in this moment feeling sad or anxious or restless. It doesn't matter if you hear the murmur of the stream or you're hearing the traffic on River Road. What matters is the quality of attentiveness. There is an incredible freedom in knowing that anything can happen, including this body dying, anything. We can be rejected, we can fail publicly and miserably. And if there's a quality of attentiveness, and we might not be there right away, but if we can come home to that presence, we rediscover the truth of who we are, the space and the heart and the vastness that has room for anything to happen. It's a refuge. And you can sense it in this story, in terms of listening to the stream, was he doing something to listen? I mean, to hear the stream, was he doing something? The way I experience it is that he had discontinued the doings. He made space. He was resting back and aware. It was an undoing. And so the liberation, the liberating presence, what really allows us to discover love and truth, doesn't come out of a doing It comes out of an undoing, a not doing, a resting. But here's the challenge, and this is the whole paradox, I think, of the path, which is that it takes a certain effort and it takes some techniques to find our way to enough quietness so we can even drop back into that receptivity. So we're kind of caught in this thing where we have to do some doing and make some effort in order to create an environment for not doing. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? This is really important. When I work with students that have been practicing for 20, 30 years, the most profound inquiry is very, very subtle and it has to do with effort. It has to do with with a light touch using the techniques that help us to settle or quiet or rebalance, but then dropping that doing, really dropping it, which is courageous and radical, so that we can discover the freedom that's really possible when there's no efforting. So this is what I I want to explore tonight. I'm going to do another shameless promotion. The How to Meditate brochure what I'm going to be covering tonight is in here and I hope it deepens your understanding but if you don't have it I really recommend having it around for reference because it really captures the essence of this practice okay (laughs) I'm not a good promoter there's a a description of meditation as being um, through both a conventional lens as being a set of practices or techniques that help us to quiet and open and arrive. And then there's what's called the kind of an ultimate reality where meditation is a non-method, where there's actually not a meditating or anyone doing anything but rather we've just come home to the natural awakeness, the natural spaciousness of our being. So it's fully inhabiting beingness. So then, as I mentioned, I want to look more into this, there's this kind of graceful and wise moving back and forth from doing the techniques to the non-doing. So when we look at this paradox a bit, there are a lot of people out there now, the non-dual meditators, that really um, say, you know, you're wasting your time with any method. And Krishnamurti... fabulous teacher, basically that his stance was any method is just going to keep you in the idea of a self trying to get somewhere, which has got some truth to it. Yet the challenge is if we're very, very distracted and very restless, or very confused, or let's say there's some trauma and we're really, really tight, in those moments to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to not do non-meditation no effort, you know and just basically our conditioning will just keep rolling through and we'll stay stuck and and, in a very unpleasant way there's a cartoon I saw of a man at a doctor's office and there's this huge knife plunged deep into his back and the doctor's saying, well it's got to come out of course, but that doesn't address the deeper problem (laughs) I don't know if you can see it but there's anyway you can come look at it if you'd like while well, the essence of the path is this natural presence this, this open wakefulness when we're stuck there's wise methods I said somebody else sent me this that on the first day of school the kindergarten teacher said if anyone has to go to the bathroom hold up two fingers a little voice from the back of the room asked how will that help? laughter So, like any healing process, one level, the conventional level of meditation, is the methods. And when I say methods, what I'm referring to is okay, let's scan our body and go through different parts of the body and let go. That's a method. We're directing the attention. Our method is okay, let's have the breath at the foreground and stay with the breath and relax with the breath. We're directing the mind. Are for some, let's name when fear comes up, just a light mental labeling, fear, fear. Are using the loving-kindness practice. Those are all methods. And yet there is a problem with methods. And this again, I'm sharing with you, some of you might be very new, but I think you'll sense intuitively this. I know people that have been meditating for decades now and have plateaued. And it's because they became addicted to the method. I'm a meditator. I do this. I, I, I am learning to stay with my breath and quiet my mind. So it just reifies a sense of a self on his or her way somewhere using a method. Whereas as long as we think we're using a method to get somewhere, we're not fully, fully embodying presence there's some leaning forward, there's some idea in our mind. And if there's any idea, that becomes a kind of... It obscures what's right here. It doesn't allow us to fully experience it. So there's an assumption, I'm not really... I'm preparing for the real thing, but the real thing's not right here. I'm assuming it's down the road. Any use of a method assumes that liberation's down the road. There's an idea. So how do we in a wise way, use these, what I call, skillful means, these methods, and yet really trust that liberation is possible, only possible here. And that if we don't drop the methods and stop controlling and really open right here, we'll always be a meditation student on our way to some future thing. Does that make sense? This balancing of skillful means and this radical presence, it just drops it all. What allows us to find that kind of grace of moving between methods and radical presence is an attitude. And it's a sincere attitude that remembers what really matters to us. So that in the moments we're remembering that what we most care about is to realize the truth of who we are. What we most care about is really living the love that's here. Not an idea of loving, not waiting to love. What really matters is to realize and live from freedom. And when we're remembering that, then there's going to be a natural intuition in terms of how to practice. What happens for many of us is that we might now and then reflect on what most matters, but our day-to-day life is driven by things that are smaller than what most matters. We get caught in our fears and our grasping, and we kind of postpone the real thing. Yeah, I care about spiritual freedom and yeah, I care about compassion and yeah, I care about... But right now I've got to finish doing my taxes or doing my shopping for the holidays. You know, it's like... And so it's kind of compartmentalized and it's always postponed. So then there's another cartoon where this is of a graveyard and you see this thought bubble coming up from under the ground. (laughs) And the thought bubble is saying, I think I know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> the caption underneath, Ed pushes the late bloomer envelope to surprising new limits. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the message really is don't wait. Re- that that um, Zen teaching that the most important thing is remembering the most important thing. To really, every day, try to remember the most important thing and let the compass of the heart be aligned with that, even when you have ten thousand errands. To remember the most important thing will then guide you in any moment when you come to, to really attend to your, to your meditation. So there's the informal meditation. But then when you come and sit, if you're really remembering what matters, there'll be a sense of okay, my mind's a bit restless I'm a bit scattered I need to be with the breath some but then remembering the most important thing will also say okay, enough no more strategies discover the presence that's right here don't wait so that's the frame I'd like to set the skillful means and methods there's radical presence and there's keeping that Aspiration alive in you, so that you can intuit how to navigate now, having said that i want to i'm going to walk through what I think are the skillful means the methods that most directly will support presence, and the first one and you'll and hopefully these are very familiar if you've been coming to class and you'll and again they're spelled out in this pamphlet the first one is to take the time to relax in the body and wake up the senses. For most of us, most everyone in this culture, we're wound tight, we're busy, we're leaning ahead, we're trying to figure out something, we're trying to solve a problem. That's our mind state, that there's a problem to be solved. Just notice it. Just notice how many moments there's some sense of you're supposed to be figuring out something and it almost doesn't feel safe or okay to just pause and not do. Listen to the words of Thomas Merton. He says, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence and that is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace, it destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. And I've shared here many times that the Chinese syllable for the word busy is very similar to the words heart killing. And that's the mood of the culture. We admire it. You know, busy means important, means special and we feel a little embarrassed or guilty when we're not so busy sometimes. So the beginning of the method side of this that's really wise is to take the time to pause and relax some of that busyness, relax through the body, relax the mind some, wake up the senses. The second part, the second skillful mean, is to establish an anchor Because we're so distracted and busy, it helps to have a home base to come back to. It helps to have some reference point that says, okay, I'm not here right now. And you kind of know it because you've been with the breath and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I've completely left. So establishing a home base. And there are a few home bases that are really common and really powerful. And one of them is the breath. And you can feel the breath at the nostrils or feel the rising falling of the chest or the abdomen. And you might even close your eyes right now and just feel how if you intentionally rest with the breath and relax with the breath so that you're not trying to hold on to it or trying to follow it. It's almost that you're receiving it that that breath can help reconnect you with hereness with the immediacy of what's right here. So this breath is one home base. And then when the mind gets scattered it's kind of simple to know, okay, let me just relax and feel the breath not to shut out anything else but just to let the breath be a friend a kind of, ah, this is hereness again. Keeping your attention inward you might hear sound and for you perhaps listening to sound might be a better anchor each anchor has its own qualities, sound helps to establish more of a spacious awareness receptive are for some the anchor of feeling the sensations of the body as you're sitting here, just feeling the body as a field of sensations, gives you access again to this here-ness, this quality of being here. So if the mind is busy, we choose an anchor and The idea is that it's usually helpful to stay with an anchor for a while so that it becomes familiar. You've got used to it. You can dig a lot of, you know, kind of shallow holes or drop pretty deep in your skillfulness with an anchor. So you might choose one and stay with it for a while. And again, not to get addicted to the method, but let that be a support for you. So what happens? We've arrived in the body. We've relaxed some. We've brought the anchor into the foreground And then, as you know, pretty soon, the mind drifts. And then the practice becomes remindfulness, right? Where we notice, oh, I've drifted. Come back, come back. So there's a kind of remembering. So this is where we're getting to the skillful means that are probably right at the heart of the practice. And if you'd like to open your eyes, you can. Most of our day and most of our time we're drifting in thoughts. And most of the time we're not mindful of the thoughts. In fact, they might be thoughts that are helpful, but a huge percentage of the time they're thoughts that are repetitive and that often have a kind of limiting version of the world. They're usually worry thoughts. Most thoughts are driven by fear. So as many of you have heard me say, that they say that we've got 90,000 thoughts a day and 98% 98% of them we had yesterday. Yeah. You know, we just keep on running them through. I heard one story, a little boy says to his mom, Mommy, pretend that you're being surrounded by a hundred hungry tigers. What are you going to do? The mom kind of goes, I give up. What am I going to do? And he says, stop pretending, you know. <laughs> So it's like Mark Twain said, the worst things in our life didn't actually happen, you know? But do do you understand that we we run so many stories and we live so much in what's around the corner and going to go wrong... I sometimes think of it like imagine you're getting on an airplane and they don't just give you the emergency instructions at the beginning, but through the entire trip they're constantly telling you, in case of an emergency, in case of an emergency. And that's what we do. And some level we're saying, well, in case this happens and this might happen. Think of the biochemistry that arises along with those thoughts. And then what happens is that biochemistry generates more thoughts. So we get caught in this kind of ongoing state of slightly maybe anxious thoughts in a body that's a little bit restless or uneasy and we live most of our life like that. So the purpose of re-mindfulness is not to get rid of thinking. It's to allow us to come back home so we actually have a choice. If it's important that we be thinking about something, great. I mean thinking is creative it's necessary for communicating for um, thriving but so much of the time our thoughts keep us in prison so much of the time and even in spiritual life I know so many people that keep having to read the next book or try to think out what the Dharma is about and just keep postponing be here feel what's here Some of you might remember the Zen story of a master and a student. This is another one. The student says, "Uh, Master, Master, what happens after we die? Tell me what happens after we die. And this Zen monk says, you know, I I don't know. And and the student's really upset. And he said, I thought you were a Zen monk. And the response was, I am, but not a dead one, you know. (laughs) So most of our suffering is because we're addicted to thoughts, and the quality of the thoughts, the stories, are stories of what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you, and they keep us caught in a sense of distance and separation and deficiency. That's basically the core of our suffering. So the skillful means? We have a home base. We start noticing the thoughts and we wake ourselves up out of them. We come back. I'll give you an example of a man that I was working with at a a New Year's retreat that I taught in New England a number of years ago. And he came to the retreat. He he and his wife had broken up and they were dealing with custody issues. And he came in an enormous amount of self-aversion and his thoughts were all about how she was doing him wrong, but really he had really blown it. And he was really angry at himself and he'd really failed in every relationship. And now he's going to fail his children too. And he was in this kind of horrific cocoon of of self-negative thoughts. And so we agreed that his retreat, he was going to use the anchor of his breath, but he was really going to be alert for any thought that was judgmental. And, of course, his judgments weren't limited to himself or his wife. He was judging other yogis at the retreat and judging the food. and He was just in judgment mode. But the basic stuff was really, I'm not even doing this retreat right. I've come here and I'm blowing it. I've blown my life. So part of what he did in as a skillful means, used the breath, but when the thoughts would come up, he'd repeat them in his mind and say them even louder and exaggerate them a little like I'm really a screw-up you know, he'd say it really loud so he really got clear this is a thought this is a judgmental thought so it wasn't kind of mushy and in the background he was very alert to them and this was what he did at that retreat it was a 10-day retreat he did it um, over and over again and he really caught on to the difference between any of his judgmental thoughts and being here with these sounds and this sensation in the body and this breath he really started getting the knack that's what that skillful means does you start and it's training a muscle you start learning the difference between any thought or story and the actuality of presence right here I described it to him, as we have tonight, as this wheel that we're on. When we're listening to our thoughts and believing our thoughts, we're caught on the wheel. You can't stop spinning. You can't get off the merry ground as long as you're believing your thoughts. And I've had so many people come out of a retreat, because retreats allow you to get quieter and use your anchor and really start sensing the difference between thoughts and reality, immediate reality that the major um, gift of the retreat was, I realized I don't have to believe my thoughts. That's it. So for him, that was what began to happen. Rather than being spinning on the wheel or going out on one of the spokes of one of his thoughts of I'm bad or his wife's bad, he kept coming back to the hub, the center. That's what this re-mindfulness does. You're often a thought come back from the the spokes or the wheel to the center over and over until you really start knowing the difference between being home and being spinning. Another way to describe it is the word carencia. And I might be pronouncing it wrong. Alicia, am I saying carencia right? Quarencia? It's the place in the bull ring where the bull feels absolutely safe. If he can reach this place, he stops running and can gather his strength and get renewed. And he's no longer afraid. And from the perspective of the opponent, the bull becomes dangerous. So, Crencia, it's the job of the matador to be sure the bull does not have time to occupy this place of wholeness. Isn't that interesting? That there's actually a place in the bullring. As human beings, Crencia is within us. When a person finds that in the full view of Mara, of the shadow of the judging, of the anger, of the resentment, of the jealousy, of the insecurity. In the full view of the matador, of Mara, we can breathe and come home to that space, that space of wholeness, that hub at the center of the wheel. Then we can respond to our world with wisdom. Crencia. So when we begin this skillful means, the first gift is the, the sense of remindfulness, that we can come back to a place of inner silence or stillness that's more secure than any hiding place and more freeing than any thought we're believing so again I want to say that when we practice these skillful means of waking up out of thoughts it doesn't mean that thoughts go away, they can still be there and it doesn't mean that the fear or the hurt goes away, that can still be there what it means is that we're in the position of awareness at the center. And so we don't have to believe the thought and we can feel some freedom. Saint Francis de Sales says, what we need in this practice of waking up out of thoughts is a cup of understanding, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. And it's true. This mind is so habituated to going into trance, it just takes a real willingness to say, I don't have to buy into these thoughts. It takes a willingness, a courage. Okay, let me just feel this breath. Let me feel my heart right now. Let me listen to these sounds. Coming back from the spokes right to the center over and over again. So I'd like to take a few minutes to practice and then we're going to go from the methods which we've just been exploring to what we call natural presence itself. So I'm going to remind you of the elements of these most basic, what we call skillful means. It's a Buddhist kind of jargon which really just means a method that helps create an environment for natural presence. And if you'll remember, the beginning is our attitude, that even for this maybe two minutes right now that we'll be practicing, just sense a sincerity, it's kind of an innocence where there's a, a willingness to be here, a caring about being awake. And then from that place of caring, invite relaxation. You might just let the shoulders relax back and down, soften the hands, loosen the belly. and Just begin relaxing with the breath. And for those of you with a different anchor or home base, listening to sounds, feeling the sensations in the body. For some it might be just having all the senses awake, listening to and feeling the whole moment. But let yourself experience this quality of here ness kind of at the center of the wheel, and know that in these next few moments if you notice the mind has drifted that you can honor that moment not judge it as an opportunity to come home again to practice this this beautiful pathway of noticing the thoughts and gently arriving again in what's actually here These sounds, this breath, this life. You can remind yourself that there's no need to follow any thought that for this time period the practice is remindfulness, coming back to the aliveness and vividness and mystery of being right here. So we have the gift of the methods that help us to get here, that help us to go from the spinning from the spokes of the thoughts back to the center again. And yet if we keep doing the method there's in some way a controlling that doesn't allow us to fully open to what's right here. So we're going to move now to the natural presence which is really, if we describe it, a relaxed attentiveness that includes everything, that doesn't oppose anything, that's not directing the mind anywhere, that's not pushing away. The qualities of natural presence are being awake, in other words, recognizing what's here and allowing it. Recognizing and allowing. So the two questions that we talk about often here are what is happening right now? That's one question that can help open you to natural presence, and you can can just pose that to yourself. What is happening right now? And just let the attention go inward. What is happening inside me right now? And the second question is, can I be with this? Can I let this be? It can be either way. Can I be with this or can I let this be? And by noticing what's happening and letting be, we rest in natural presence. The only way to really heal and be free is to meet the different changing experiences of our life in this place of authentic presence. Carl Jung said that that which we do not bring to consciousness appears in our life as fate that which we do not bring to consciousness appears in our life as fate. As long as we're controlling, using methods, we can defend against different parts of our being, our fears, our shame, our longing, our passions. We can keep them suppressed. But with natural presence, whatever wants to present itself is free to, and it actually frees us from that fate, which really is of a defended heart. So the purpose of practice is this full presence. Knowing what's happening, receiving with an open heart. It's resting in creencia, in the face of the shadow, and then inhabiting that creencia, like really opening to whatever happens. What I'd like to do is just kind of bring you back to this, the work with this man at the New Year's retreat because he had used the methods to come back from the judging thoughts and to notice the difference between thoughts and being here. But then what happened was, what was under the judging thoughts, all the shame and fear that was really gripping his being started coming up. So his practice then was, how does he stay in this creencia, in this openness, in this presence and be willing to meet the fear and the shame. And that was really the inquiry. And so he used those two questions. He kept asking himself, what is happening and can I be with this? So he could really, creencia. he could stay at the center of the wheel and open to what was happening. Because otherwise he kept going off into the thoughts about who was wrong coming back to the hub and then staying in the hub, learning to stay as the matador, as the shadow side presents itself. Now sometimes the fears that come up when we're at the center of the wheel are so great that if we try to stay we'd get re-traumatized. And for him initially he was really shaky, so I suggested he do something which was that he sensed the fear as if he was sitting on a park bench and he let the fear be right next to him. So rather than directly facing it, feeling it, opening to it, he felt the fear sitting next to him on a park bench. And he remembered the space around, the trees, the, the sky. He imagined all that. So he could begin to be with the fear but not have directly feel overwhelmed. And after he did that, he was able to then actually say what is happening and feel the fear inside him and begin to lean in. And that is the key with fear. Every bit of our conditioning is to push it away. So to decondition, there's a leaning in. To rest in this carencia is to actually invite fully what's there, to be there. But as I said, if, you, if there's been trauma, not too quickly. Take some time first. So for him... This man, he started practicing natural presence, this unresisting, non-resisting, open-hearted presence with the fear and the shame. And what he described to me was this shift whereby he said, Tara, I wasn't even in the center of the wheel anymore. I became the whole space that the wheel was floating in. He wasn't even controlling himself to be in the center. He became that space of awareness and compassion that everything was happening in. And that's really the essence of karencia, that it's not even a grounded spot. There's not even a center. What happens when there's this fully inhabiting natural presence is that we inhabit the full space of awareness. And anything that arises, anything that arises can be held in compassion. For this man, the more he rested in that space, that vastness of space, and the more, the more tender he was with himself, he, he left this New Year's retreat and his resolution, his most important thing that he wanted to remember, and this is for him at this point in his life, was to not let his judgments obscure his loving in other words, not to believe his judging thoughts because they stopped him from loving. And that's what he went home with. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that just that alone, if we let our, our um, reflection be just how whenever there's judgment, instead of believing the thought, come back to the center of the wheel to be really, really present until it becomes actually a space of compassion. If we could wake up out of our judging thoughts we'd be part of the healing of the planet. That is where the healing comes from. So I hope you're getting a sense of the difference between directing the mind, you know, going from thoughts back to the breath or scanning the body, to this presence that says, whatever is here may I be with us. This fear, this shame, these sounds, this breath, just opening to it all, without any conditionality at all. When we inhabit this non-doing, there's an amazing quality of intimacy with our life. It's very difficult to feel intimate when we're controlling things. If you're controlling your own mind, if you're trying to control someone else, if you're trying to control what's going to happen down the road in those moments there's no real intimacy with the season that you're in, with the body that you're in, with the person that you're with. And it's the same thing with meditation. If you're controlling your mental state, you can get from the spokes back to the center, but there's no real intimacy with life. They're still controlling. A poem for you. It's called Feeding Birds Under the Birch when the chickadee in a split-second landing bends one whisper of skeletal feet around my finger she and I feel a quickening like that touch of a shooting star on the dark abiding sky and nothing I do in the world compares to that moment of stillness that desire to be present and ready to receive So let's take a few moments together right now to just explore a taste of that radical presence. And as you pause right now, as you come into stillness, just a sense this is that gateway to Zen, that gateway to awakening that that Zen master talked about. It's the simplicity of relaxed attentiveness. That desire to be present and ready to receive is the essence of intimacy. Take a few moments, if there is something tense in your body, to let it go. See if it's possible to relax just a little bit more. Take a moment to sense if your senses are awake, if you are aware of the sounds that are right here, aware of the space in this room, aware of the sensations and vibrations and aliveness in your body. Let your senses be wide open. Just asking yourself, is it possible to relax just a little bit more? Karencia is that stillness that's already here when there's no striving. That silence that's listening. That field of awakeness. See if you can notice the presence that's here. Actually feel it. Do you hear the sound of that mountain stream? Enters in from there. Relaxed attentiveness. There is a teaching that life is not a problem to be solved but a mystery to be lived. We discover this mystery when we relax back and come home to this living presence. closing the evening with the prayer that these practices and teachings of presence might awaken our hearts and minds, that we might realize the love, the awakeness that's our very essence and that our lives be lived from that moment by moment with the beings that we touch, in all the ways we serve and savor. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org.